You are listening to a podcast from Vineyard Church of Augusta. For more information, visit vineyardaugusta.org. Yeah, so today, again, I'm excited to be kicking off a new message series called The Mystery of Faith. Uh, and I want you to think for a moment as we start off, what is the oldest, like, manufactured, human-made thing that, that you've ever seen in person, right, that you've ever visited or touched or something? So not a, not a photograph, you're not watching National Geographic or something, right, but you've touched it or seen it. it it's, a, it's an interesting thing in our country. The United States is fairly young as countries go, um, so we don't tend to have, like, a lot of buildings that are particularly very old. Um, like those you would find, say, in Europe or like the Mediterranean or Asia or in other parts of the world. Um, and, and because naturally, right, most of the oldest structures in our country are on the East Coast. So maybe you've seen some, of, particularly if you've traveled in the Northeast or something like that. Um, I grew up in San Diego, the motherland. God bless it. Um, and what's interesting is in San Diego... The oldest buildings around are Spanish missions. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, um, but there's Spanish missions. Uh, between 1769 and like 1823, Spanish missionary monks that were led by Padre Junipero Serra, they built 21 missions in a chain that stretch all the way from San Diego all the way up to San Francisco Bay. Um, and there's two such missions in San Diego. The oldest of these is the Misión San Diego de Alcala. There's a lovely photo of it right here. Um, and these are, this is like common fare for like field trips growing up and things like this. Um, this mission, it was built in 1769. So to, to put in, if you can't do math in your head, I've done it for you in advance. I got out my calculator, literally. Um, this was built seven years before the United States declared independence from England, right? So that's pretty old. Um, 81 years before us, it became the 31st state of the Union in 1850. Like, it's pretty old, right? This is pretty old. Now, it's, it's one thing to, to visit a building that is old. It's one thing to encounter a place that has a sense of old, but it's another thing to encounter something ancient. Now, have you ever visited something ancient, right? Um, I've visited several places in the, uh, that, that are pretty ancient, the most ancient of which is Machu Picchu. Anybody else ever been to Peru? Lovely country. I'm craving ceviche right now. Um, but Machu Picchu was built in 1450 AD, 1450 AD. That's 1,450 years before the birth of Christ. Now, of course, visiting it, it is now ruins, but you still, you get this tremendous sense of, of somehow being connected with like all of human history, if I can put it that way right? If I can use this word without it sounding too like woo-woo or whatever, right? It's kind of magical. There, there's, having never visited something older than what the Spanish missions that I saw in San Diego, suddenly being in something this old gave me this tremendous sense of being really small and, and my life being really fleeting, but, but somehow feeling this tremendous unity with all of human history, where people have been building homes and shops and restaurants and places of worship all around the world. And you can walk among these ruins where people used to walk and live and just existed like you and I exist in our world today. So it's a really, really different thing to encounter something old as opposed to countering something that is really deeply ancient. I think it affects our souls in some really powerful ways. And so in this series, The Mystery of Faith, um, this is a Lenten journey through the Apostles' Creed. That is, the, today is the first Sunday of Lent, and running now through Easter, we're going to journey through the Apostles' Creed. 
Now, through this, what I hope is that we, we can get a little more in touch with the fact that our faith is an ancient faith. What you and I believe, if you're believers here today, I don't assume that all of us are, if you're just checking out Christianity, you're in for a treat. This is really, really ancient. This isn't something new, right? We didn't just cook this up yesterday. And I believe that the more that we connect with, with the historical nature of our faith, the richer it becomes for us today. Because every time that we read the scriptures, and we're going to read some Bible this morning, every time we read the scriptures, we, we interact with something ancient. Every time we pray, we, we engage in an ancient spiritual practice. Every time that we gather together for worship, even if you're gathering with us on Facebook Live, it still kind of counts, right? Every time we gather together for worship, we enter the company of believers who have gathered in just the same way for 2,000 years. Even more if you count our roots in Judaism. We're, this is not a new phenomenon. We're in a company of ancient believers. Christianity is an ancient faith. And in our, in our kind of modern, progress-driven world, right, we're living our fast-paced and hyper-connected lives. It can be easy to forget that. It can be really easy to forget that. And so my hope and prayer is that through this series of the mystery of faith, that as we explore these historically central Christian beliefs, that you find some, some, some new uh, wonderful joy in your soul in putting down roots in our ancient faith. Now, Christianity at its heart is a confession. It is not an explanation, right? And so rather than trying to lay out some full teaching of doctrine through this series, what we're aiming to do is to invite you deeper into the wonderful mystery of faith, right? These are just real clear, simple statements of what we believe and to try to unpack them all. Well, we've been doing this for 2,000 years, and if Jesus doesn't come back sooner, we're gonna do it for another 2,000 more, Right? So I invite you to enter into these. And whether, whether you're just hearing these messages on Sunday um, or you're engaging with the devotional guide, if you haven't picked up a devotional guide, you can grab one on your way out. You can also uh, sign up to receive them via email or you can check it out on our website. However you engage, I hope that you really um, find some deep joy in connecting with the riches of our faith. Now, this word creed is important to understand. The word creed simply comes from the Latin. It means credo, and that means I believe. And if, you've, if you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or any of the creeds that we have, they all start off saying things like, I believe all these things, right? Or sometimes they make it plural, we believe such and such things. Um, and the Apostles' Creed, this is probably the best summary of early Christian beliefs that we have to this day. Um, and to this day, uh, the Apostles' Creed is recited in many churches all throughout the world. It's the oldest of the Christian creeds. It dates back um, to the second century in Rome. Despite it, despite it, it's a little bit of a misnomer, guys. It wasn't really written by the apostles, right? So, but it's the closest one that we have during that time. And it dates back all the way to the second century BC. So some of the very first followers of Jesus that converted other followers of Jesus, then they started to form this creed as a baptismal confession. So folks who were coming into the faith, who were believing in this way of following Jesus, they were taught this creed to memorize it, to unpack a little bit of what they mean as ways of making sure, are, are, are you sure you're in on this, right? You really do believe these basic things. Um, and even today, it is used that way, and I think it's wonderful. And so the, the purpose of a creed, guys, is really simple. It's just to provide a concise and memorable summary of our core beliefs as Christians. That's it. Can we, can we make it as short and as memorable 
as possible. And so let me just read this to you. You can read along with me. It's up on the screens. But let me just read to you the text of the Apostles' Creed. And again, these are things that all um, Christians believe even today. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So pretty short and sweet, right? And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, I'm sure you could imagine that pulling out any one of those things kind of starts to unravel a whole bunch. And so each week, what we're going to do in this series is take a look at a different aspect that we confess in the Apostles' Creed, right? We're going to look at Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the universal church. That's what the word Catholic means here, right? It's not Roman Catholic with capital R and C, but it means universal. Uh, We're going to look at the local church, which is another way of interpreting the communion of saints. We're going to talk about the forgiveness of sins, and we're going to wrap it up on Easter Sunday talking about the resurrection of the body, but which means today I get to talk about God the Father. God the Father. Um, You know, Jesus, in the Gospels, by far, his very favorite term for God is Father. Sometimes he uses the word God, right? Sometimes he uses some other kind of terms that we know that's what he's talking about. But far and above any others, he loves to call God Father. Sometimes he says, the Father. Sometimes he says, my Father or your Father. Sometimes he says, our Father. Sometimes when he's praying, he just directly addresses God and says, Father, right? Now, in total, he refers to God as Father 181 times in the Bible. I counted them this week. 111 of which are in the gospel of John alone. So even for John, as he's writing this, he seems seems like father, it's like Mark only does it like three times, you know? But so I figured we're gonna gonna spend some time in John today. And of course, there's no way in a single sermon that we could uh, cover all of the text or all of the nuances. So we're just gonna land on one. And so if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 15. Um, This was just simply the text this week as I read all of these that, that just kind of kept jumping out to me. There's maybe something that the Lord wanted us to hear today. And, uh, and, and before we read some scripture, would you guys pray with me? We're going to invite the Holy Spirit to open up our ears once again and to let us hear what he has to say through his word. God, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for the way that your Holy Spirit inspired so many to write them down and so many to preserve them and so many to translate them that we might know you. We just pray, God, today, would you help us to hear your scriptures with fresh ears? God, help us to see you in new light. Help us to see ourselves in new light. Pray that your voice today, God, would speak much more loudly than my own. Come, Holy Spirit, and bless the reading of your word today. Amen. Amen. So we're primarily going to look at just three verses here. I'm going to cut out a little chunk of these if you're familiar with this passage uh, because I'm focusing on the verses where Jesus is clearly talking about the Father. 
So John 15, 1 and 2, and then we'll jump down to verse 8. Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, this is an interesting one. I, this is the only one that I could find unless I was missing something. Again, you start reading like 181 verses and you're gonna, your, your eyes start crossing a little bit. But why a gardener? Right? There, there's certainly a lot of other job descriptions Jesus could have given his father. You know, like when you're a little kid, right? And you're like elementary school, and it's like, well, what does your dad do? You know? And it's a big deal what your dad does, right? So Jesus says here, this is kind of like my father's job description. He says, my father is a gardener. He could have said, my father is the king. He could have said, my father is the judge. He could have said, my father is the doctor. He could have said, my father is the landowner. And all of those could be true, right? Jesus himself uses those at other times. Other writers in the New Testament have terms like this that they use for God, but he doesn't use those here. Here, he presents his father as the gardener. And I, I, I think it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant that Jesus refers to the creator as the gardener. The one that created everything is also the one now who tends and sustains everything. There's a lot going on here that I think is super intentional. Now, real quick, let's, let's talk for a moment about gardeners. So I'm going to maybe step a little sideways from this text, and maybe I'm reading into it a little bit, but I think, that, I think, this, is, I think this makes sense. I think Jesus wants us to catch this kind of stuff, and we'll, we'll swing back to the text in a few minutes here. Um, how many of you guys are gardeners? Anybody? Like legit gardeners? Like, okay, then hands went back down. How many, like amateur gardeners? Okay, right? I would not claim that, right? I'm the grunt work at our house. Um, how, many of you guys, how many of you guys know Elliot Price? Any of you guys know Elliot from the Giving Farm over here? If you're new to the vineyard and you have not gone to visit the, the Vineyard Giving Farm over here, I highly encourage you to do it, right? Grab my wife, Angela. She's a great gardener. She'll give you a tour. She's done a lot of work over there. Grab Mary Margaret. When she's done with kids' church stuff, she'll give you a tour. Um, I'm like signing them up for jobs. They both have things to do today. <laughs> Don't do that today. Um, Set an appointment for a different day or just walk over there. It's beautiful. This, it, you, this little plot of land was just barren. It was nothing. And Elliot Price is a master gardener. Like it's a legit title. It's on a business card, I'm sure, that, that has transformed this into a beautiful garden that produces fruits and vegetables that we then give away to, to the hungry and the poor through our, our food pantry over here on a weekly basis. Um, so if you know Elliot, um, if you know my wife, my wife is a fabulous gardener as well. My neighbor yesterday, she was just giving us, um, giving me a lot of praise for how beautiful uh, Angela has made our yard. And she started trying to include me in that, making it beautiful. I was like, it's not me, I promise. Like, I, I use the shovel and dig the holes. That's about all the credit I get. But here's some things. If you know a great gardener like Angela or like Elliot or some of you in the room, here's a few things that we need to know about gardeners. One, gardeners are passionate about plants. Like, like really passionate about them, right? They're, the care that they give their plants flows out of love and adoration. You would think they were pets or something, right? Uh, plant, plants are not mere objects. Uh, they're, they're not just a project to do. Plants are not just a means to an end. Even if they're, they're, they're fruit-bearing plants or vegetable-bearing plants, they're not just a means to an end. They, they're just passionate about them because they love them so much. Second thing is that gardeners, they want plants to thrive and to become their best selves, 
They really do. Like, they don't just leave the plants to fend for themselves. That's what I do, right? It's like, if you want to live bad enough, plant, you know, you can do it. But good gardeners, they, they constantly do things like, like water and fertilize and weed and prune them so that they can really, really thrive. Because a plant can't. A plant can survive on its own. Angela always says, every plant wants to survive. We just got to help it out. Every plant can survive on, it own, on its own, but it often takes the, scale, the skill and the care of a gardener to help it to truly thrive and become its absolute best. Third thing about gardeners, gardeners understand the unique qualities and needs of each plant. Right? They, they don't expect the same thing from every plant in their garden. And nor do they nurture every plant the same, right? They, they know that a tomato plant is different from basil, which is different from yarrow, which is different than a blood good maple, right? And, and if, you're, if you're a gardener, you know this. It took me a long time to learn this. But if you go to a garden store, there's clues everywhere. Like they want everybody to know this, apparently, and there's like tags on the plants or tags stuck in the dirt that tell you things, right? Like how much sunlight does this plant need per day? How many hours of sunlight? And is it, is it direct sunlight or is it like kind of shady? What kind of soil does this plant need? What's the pH level need to be? Um, does it need to be kind of sandy or rocky soil? Um, does, it, does it need to be really, really soggy and wet all the time? Or does it thrive where it's more dry kind of soil, right? It gives you all these kinds of clues. Good gardeners don't expect the same thing from every plant, and they don't treat every plant the same. Fourth thing about gardeners, especially really great ones, is that they're visionary. I know this firsthand because my wife always has a new project, Right? I've been doing lots of edging lately. Because they see how the entire landscape can be transformed into something more beautiful and how each plant plays a part. This was Elliot's genius too, the giving farm over here. He just sees it. You start talking to him about it and he's not just going to describe what is there, he's going to describe to you what is not yet there, but that is possible, right? They always see what is bigger and more possible. A great gardener, they're more excited by growth than by maintenance. They're more excited to see what new plants can come, how it can expand or spread. They're way more excited by that than just maintaining what little bit that they've got going on there. And a fifth thing is that gardeners are willing to put in hard work. Gardeners are hard workers. So are people who are married to gardeners, <laughs> I would add. But gardeners put in the time, the energy, the resources, the blood, and the sweat, and the tears that tending a garden requires, and it does. Because they do this, again, back to their love and their passion, they do this because the end goal of this garden's flourishing and beauty is worth it. It's worth all of the cost that goes into it. Now, I think this is indicative of what Jesus wants us to understand about the Father. Because what God creates, again, God is a creator, and if God is a gardener, then what God creates, he loves and nurtures. So here's some things that I want you to know about your father today. And I'm even saying this as your father, uh, because I know many of you are believers. If you are not a believer, I'm still looking at you today and saying, your father. 
because he still wants to consider himself your father, even if you don't yet. And that's okay. Here's the first thing. Your father is passionate about you. Your father is passionate about you. His care for you flows out of love and adoration for you. You are not a mere object to him. You are not just a number. You are not a project. You are not a means to an end. He loves you. John, John is real big on love. If you go ahead and if you flip ahead in the Bible and if you read um, the letters of John that he wrote before getting exiled to Patmos, he wrote some pastoral letters to some churches, and particularly the first one, um, there's so much in there about the love of God. It's so rich and beautiful. And in, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. He, he lavishes love on us the way a gardener lavishes love on their plants. So your father is passionate about you. The second thing is your father wants you to thrive and to become your best self. You know, like we human beings, just like plants, we human beings can survive on our own. We really can. You can survive in your life on your own apart from God, but we need the care of a skilled gardener to truly thrive. We really do. We need the care of our skilled father gardener to help us truly thrive. If you go and read, the first psalm is beautiful. The first psalm talks a little bit about this, right, of the one who, who follows the ways of God and who sticks close to God. He says, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. It is God's desire for you to be like a well-watered tree that fruits in season and whose leaf does not wither. And everything that he commands of us and everything that he works on our behalf is all towards this end because he wants you to thrive. So the father's passionate about you. He wants you to thrive and become your best self. And third, your father understands your unique qualities and needs. I think this is a really important one. Because we can get really, it, this is a tricky thing in church land, and it's a tricky thing as a pastor, right? It's, it's easy sometimes to just assume, like, oh, well, we all need the same thing, so we're all just, this is what it is. And everybody just do this, and you'll be fine. But, but that doesn't make a really healthy garden. God doesn't expect the same thing from you that he might expect from someone else. And there, there might be a lot of, like, similarities, Right? And certain things are, are true across the board, like, well, God wants that person to be kind. He doesn't really want that of me. Well, I don't, let's read a little more Bible, okay? But he doesn't expect the same fruit from you that he might expect from someone else. And he doesn't nurture you exactly like he nurtures someone else. If I can flip metaphors for a little bit here, right? If you're not a gardener, but you're a parent, you know this is true. Well, if you're a parent of more than one child, Right? You figure out real quick that, oh, you can't just treat the second one the same as the first one? Like, I thought it was doing so well. And then you get to the second one, you're like, I don't know what I'm doing <laughs> at all. 
thought I had it figured out. He doesn't expect the same thing from you. He doesn't nurture you the same. He knows your unique qualities and needs, and he treats you appropriately. Thomas Merton, a Trappist monk and my spirit animal, um, (laughs) says this. A tree gives glory to God by being a tree. For in being what God means it to be, it is obeying God. It consents, so to speak, to God's creative love. It is expressing an idea which is in God and which is not distinct from the essence of God. And therefore, a tree imitates God by being a tree. And God's desire for you is to give him glory by being you. God's desire is for you to give him glory, to imitate him by being you. It's beautiful. Your father's passionate about you. Your father wants you to thrive and to become your best self. And your father understands your unique qualities and needs. And he's also visionary. Your father sees how the entire landscape around you can be transformed into something more beautiful and how you play a part in that. This is why I love that our, our kind of motto as a church is to love Jesus and do his ministry everywhere. Now, everywhere doesn't mean literally everywhere in the sense that like you can't go everywhere, right? You can't do all the things. I know some of you think that you can You can't be all things to all people. You can't show up and meet every need everywhere. But everywhere you go, you can be there. Does that make sense? Right? Wherever you go, you are still that imitator of God. You are still that image bearer of God that just brings him glory in whatever place you happen to be at that moment in time. Whether literal or virtual. It's how it works these days. He sees how the entire landscape around you can be transformed into something more beautiful, and he's got specific reasons for you to be there. And just like, a, just like a gardener, he's way more excited by growth than by maintenance. He's way more excited by the new things that can happen around you all the time than just maintaining your little world, you know? And as Christians, we can do that real easy, Right? I've got my little people, I've got my little thing, and let me just protect it, and let me just care for this and make this grow. And like, it might be fine, and it might be healthy, but, but I think the Lord's like, you know, there's more. You know, it's like the Apostle Paul writes, he says, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And not only is he able to do more than we can imagine, he wants to do more than we can imagine. Sometimes I think, well, yeah, God's got a big imagination, but he's not really interested in that in my life. Like, understand, I think this is important. Your imagination is smaller than God's imagination. And this is not a problem to be fixed. I don't think this is a problem, right? This is just a fact. This is not a call to dream bigger. The problem is not that your dreams for your life are too small. No matter how big you may dream for your life, God's dreams are still always going to be bigger. And if there's a problem here at all, the problem is just that we get too attached to our own dreams. Our problem is that we get too attached to our own small visions for our life. 
And now, and I, I tend to be like a fairly visionary person, right? Like, I've, I've got ideas for everything. And they're not always great ideas, but I'm way more interested in my new ideas than whatever is currently happening at this moment, you know? Like, I'm preaching this right now, and already I'm thinking about something else, you know? <laughs> you know what we could do next time? And, and this is a bigger story than I can tell right now, but for years... Angela and I had a dream of planting a church in North Carolina and pastoring there probably until we either retired or died. But God, as it turns out, had a bigger vision for our lives than we even had. And he gave us huge gifts that we never would have asked for, like like living near all of our extended family. And I I think, uh, if I'm honest, I'm still processing a lot of this, but I realized this week in meditating on these verses that part of what I have needed to learn in this season of life is that while I tend to feel like I'm a pretty visionary person, my father is more visionary. While I tend to be a dreamer, my father is a bigger dreamer. So he's passionate about you. He wants you to thrive. He understands your uniqueness. He is visionary and sees and dreams bigger than you do. And your father is willing to put in hard work on your behalf. He is willing to put in the time, the energy, the resources, and the blood, and the sweat, and the tears that tending you requires. You are a lot of work. Don't nod and look at your spouse. I am a lot of work, right? All of us are. And again, that's not a problem to be fixed either. It just is what it is, right? A gardener doesn't look out at their garden and go, all these stupid plants, they're such such problems. Why, Why do I even bother? Not a real gardener. I mean, maybe there's days like that, I don't know. But God doesn't look out at us as his garden and say that. The end goal of your flourishing and beauty are worth it to him. Now, part of this hard work, according to Jesus, that he specifically mentions is pruning, which we'll talk about in a moment. But check out what I referred to this verse a minute ago, um, but this is Ephesians 3. Where Paul writes, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So you see this glory bit again, right? It's all to the end of God's glory. But he says that God's power is at work in us. And that power is at work based on his like imagination, He's got a big imagination and a lot of power. And God God is at work. Not God did work. Sometimes we talk about God's work as if if Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead and that was it and God did his work. I mean, don't get me wrong, right? Like there's a reason that Easter is the high point of the Christian calendar because the death and resurrection of Jesus are the linchpin of everything. That is the greatest like example of his hard work for us. But he is constantly at work. He has not stopped tending you. He has not stopped paying careful attention to you for the sake of your flourishing. 
Now consider this for a moment as we start winding down. Like what's a plant's role in the garden? If that's what the gardener does, what is a plant's role in the garden then? A plant simply has to be. Right? This is pretty, this is pretty straightforward. Uh, a plant has no agenda. There's no like striving action. The habanero plant's not out there like, make habaneros, make habaneros, make habaneros. Make them spicier, make them spicier. A plant just entrusts itself and yields to the gardener. So then the question for us is, what is your role in the garden of God? You, as a branch attached to the vine of Jesus, rooted in God's garden, what is your role? I think it's much the same. Is it, it's to learn how to simply be. Just to learn how to be. Because you are a human being, you are not a human doing. And I don't know if this is just an American problem. I think it's an especially an American problem. But all throughout human history, we, we are big doers. And doing is good and accomplishing is good. And like it's not an excuse for laziness, right? But doing only comes after being. Part of John 15 that we didn't read that maybe was in the back of your minds if you're familiar with it is he says, Jesus says, remain in me, right? Branch attached to the vine. Remain in me as I also remain in you. Connected. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Being must come before doing. Abiding, which is another translation sometimes of this verse, abiding must come before producing. Now, this is, this is where the whole garden metaphor breaks down. All good metaphors break down eventually. And it's this, is that plants do not have wills, but we human beings do. A plant doesn't need to choose to yield to the gardener. But we human, human beings, we have to make that conscious and humble decision. Okay, I will just be and I will abide and I will yield myself to Father Gardener. I'll drop my agenda. I'm going to stop all my, my striving action. And I will entrust my whole self to you, Lord. So again, today today's the first Sunday of Lent. And Lent is a season of pruning. There's a lot of value. If you pay attention to like the cycles of the Christian calendar, there's a lot of value to that. And it's not everything. But I think it's important that we come to this season of Lent and recognize that it's good to, to come back to a, a season of time in our lives where, where there's a season of pruning. And if you're, if you're a gardener, you know this is what happens, right? You have to do that with your plants. And Lent in particular expresses this pruning through a couple of practices. The first being confession and repentance. Right? If you came to any of our Ash Wednesday prayers or if you came to the service that evening at 6.30 with some worship and stuff too, there's just a lot of confession and repentance of our sins. Pruning. Another big practice during Lent is fasting, right? Where we, we choose to abstain from something for a season of time. 
Now, Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And there it is. The sin that entangles us, right? Confession, repentance. But there are other things, even otherwise good things, that hinder us, things that we just fast from. I invite you during this Lenten season to yield yourself to the gardener. Engage in confession and repentance. Engage in fasting if that's something that that he, he, he calls you to do for the sake of your own flourishing. Why don't you guys stand with me? I want to close this today by, by reading together the Apostles' Creed. Again, our faith is a confessional faith. It's not just an explanation of everything. But I encourage you as you read this, right? If there's a part you feel like you can't say genuinely, like you can skip that line. It's fine. But especially this first part about the Father, I invite you to read this with me and confess this with me maybe with, with new fervor and new belief. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.